Hello and welcome to Outward. I'm Jules Gill-Peterson and any resemblance to Elvira, Mistress of the Dark this month is purely coincidental, or so my lawyers have told me. And I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate. And I don't know if y'all knew this, listeners, Jules, I'm sure you did know this, because it doesn't get as much fanfare as Pride, but October is LGBT History Month. Can you believe we get two months out of the year just for us? It's truly an embarrassment of months. Uh, We're so lucky. And they're perfectly aligned with the weather. June is when you want to strip down to your undies for pride. And in October, you just want to bundle up in a quaint little library with a history book. So in that spirit, we have a cozy autumnal episode for you this month that will pair exquisitely with your cable knits, your fire pits, your Negroni Spagliatos with Prosecco in them. So first of all, Brian is still out allegedly writing his book, but we're going to be barging into his study to drag him back on the show for a discussion of Bros, the gay rom-com written by and starring Billy Eichner, which is in theaters now. Then we have a special guest from the Library of Congress, Meg Metcalf. They're a librarian and LGBTQ plus studies collection specialist at the Library of Congress. And they'll talk us through the process of recording and remembering LGBTQ history. Uh, They're also going to introduce us to some queer and trans gems that the library has in its collection. You know, it's not just crystal flutes and all. But before all that, I want to shout out this submission that we got to our thoughts and queries inbox. Listener Bonnie Raymond wrote in to set me straight, as it were, about something that I said in our segment about a league of their own. So just to recap, I was sort of rolling my eyes at the modern day lingo and dialogue in the series, including the word problematic. Well, Bonnie helpfully informed me that problematic, despite being the call out verbiage of choice on Tumblr and TikTok in our century, is actually a very old word. It was first recorded in the 1600s with roots in the Latin problematicus and the Greek problematicos. So, you know, faves have been problematic since at least the early 17th century. Thank you, Bonnie. It's new info to me. That's incredible. I didn't realize that either. And I'm sort of, you know, disturbed as a millennial, who I think (laughs) is their generation responsible for this word. But thank you, Bonnie, and thank you for giving Christina a chance to speak both gay language, Latin, and lesbian language, Greek. (laughs) Just a reminder, listeners, you can and should reach out to us anytime with your thoughts, your advice questions, your call-outs, your call-ins, your call-me-maybes at outwardpodcast at slate.com. All right, well, uh, now that I've corrected myself for the record, uh, Jules... Pride or provocation? How are you feeling this month? So I'm going to try and have it both ways. Have my cake and eat it too, if you will, because wasn't it Bisexual Awareness Week recently? Anyways, um, (laughs) I I feel like I'm like, I'm either, and I'm not sure, I'm either proudly provoked, or maybe I'm provocatively proud, or maybe I'm neither that or the other, but some secret third thing about Jon Stewart, um, Mm. you know, who has this new show out on Apple TV called The Problem. And so 
the way I'm feeling is just about him setting the bar for like literal basic journalism about trans people. Um, this new show, the first episode, you know, which I take it sort of each episode kind of deals with a, a sort of big issue of the day. And the first episode was called The War Over Gender premiered on October 7th, and is really just, you know, Stuart, who has his own sort of particular history, um, you know, with transphobic comedy or whatever uh, on The Daily Show and elsewhere, sitting down and actually just like doing something that, as we sort of realize when watching it, no one does, which is like fact check people, (laughs) um, ask actual experts, not take um, people who do their research on, you know, 4chan um, or, you know, on Mumsnet as seriously as people with PhDs or people who work for medical associations and actually interview trans people. You know, shout out to my all-time fave Chase Strangio, who's on the episode, also several parents of trans youth. And actually just like, you know, John Stewart is like, hi, I'm just going to be like a basic human being um, and do like literally the basics um, of journalism. It's totally worth watching. It cuts through a lot of BS that we get, you know, sort of handed to us every day when it comes to reporting on trans folks. But like, oh, I also just like felt all sorts of ways about being like, wow, the bar is set on the floor. Um, and like, you know, it's nice to see one person with a platform, you know, be responsible and judicious. Um, but it also kind of made me sad that, you know, this is like the first time we're seeing someone um, just like do basic due diligence and not be a total jerk. So thank you, John Stewart. Like, I'm very grateful. I, I, I don't know that I feel proud. Um, mm. And, um, and, and so I'm still, still, still trying to figure that out. But, but I do recommend people maybe give that episode a watch just to, to see what they think. And, and maybe you can help me Y'all can help me find my feelings about it. Hmm. I want to recommend a piece that Slate ran by Evan Urquhart on this yeah. exact segment called Why John Stewart's Humiliation of an Anti-Trans Official is So Important. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated his analysis because he was basically saying something similar to you, which is like, yes, I know this is the bare minimum. And I know that like possibly Jon Stewart is preaching to the choir, but actually there are a lot of people out there who consider themselves like good liberals or whatever, who are still very easily taken in by these sort of like just asking questions, articles in the New York Times or whatever that give like equal time to bad faith, not actually researchers and like legitimate people with expertise who like serve trans populations or who are trans. And the Jon Stewart episode, I hope, and Evan writes, like, may give permission for some of those people Mm -hmm. to actually be like, you know what, I can be on the right side of history on this issue, or I don't have to sort of equivocate or shy away from this issue because it seems complicated to me. It actually can be pretty simple. Yeah, no, I think I think Evan is totally right about that. Highly, highly recommend. Maybe things will start to change a little bit for the better. well, well, we'll we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, so. I mean, it's it's nice to hear that note of reserved op- optimism, and to have occasion to have that sort of reserved feeling of optimism. Even I occasionally feel that way. Um, Christina, how are you feeling this month? <laughs> so I was going to be provoked by people who call Halloween gay Christmas because I actually <laughs> think it's straight pride. Um, which 
you know, Dan Savage has famously argued that this right. is like straight people's moments to parade their sexuality and whatever. But then I found something else to be provoked about. So as you can see, I snuck in like an extra provocation there. I yes. promise I'll be proud one of these times, but <laughs> I just read a piece yesterday about this new study that came out from the HRC and Bowling Green State University. They did a study of data from the U.S. Census and Gallup surveys and found that you know, extrapolating our population numbers and mm. LGBTQ populations into the future. In 2030, about one in seven Americans who are eligible to vote will be LGBTQ because oh. we know like younger generations, way more of them are trans and queer and they're going to turn 18 someday. And if you extrapolate that even further, in 2040, about one in five voting eligible people will be LGBTQ. So that's wow. great. The more the merrier, you know, maybe in 2040, even like one in five films will be like bros. <laughs> we can only hope. Um, but the analysis tacked onto this study is where it gets mm. a little shifty, in my opinion. Mm. So the researchers write, the surge in LGBTQ plus voters is expected to transform the American electoral landscape, most critically tipping the scales in red states that are on the cusp of no longer being reliably red, helping to push those states into firmly purple territory. So they single out Georgia, Ohio, Texas, Arizona as places where there's going to be a much larger proportion of LGBTQ voters in coming decades. And this is expected to change political outcomes in favor of Democrats. To me, these are extremely spurious claims that rely completely on an assumption that LGBTQ people will remain like a unified block of Democratic voters, even as literally everything else in the world changes and our numbers increase and like mm. the politicians who make up those parties change. This has echoes of the claims that people have made about voters of color that analysts yeah. have always said, like, as the U.S. becomes less white, Republicans will have a hard time winning. And like, you know, Republicans better start reaching out to voters of color because, you know, they're like always going to vote Democrat otherwise. And I think for Democrats, that's been an excuse to take voters of color for granted to not do outreach or shape party mm. platforms around you know, the needs of those voters, it's extremely patronizing as well. And mm -hmm. ignores the fact that all sorts of people vote against their own self interest, even all the time. And why would LGBTQ people be any different? It feels like this study or this analysis around this study, if I had to guess the intent behind it, it would be to sort of caution Republicans away from these really extreme anti-trans and homophobic laws. That's like a, a very essential part of the platforms of all of these high profile Republicans running around the country. But what I actually see is Democrats reading this and sort of sitting back on their laurels and thinking like, well, like, that's good for us. And we don't actually have to do anything now. It makes me sad. It's not based in like an accurate reading of history or an accurate mm -hmm. assessment of how people behave and vote. And I'm honestly really disappointed that the HRC and Bowling Green State University chose to append this pretty interesting study with this analysis that is not based in fact. Yeah, it has very like 
it gets better vibes, right? I was like 2040. Yes. So you're telling yes. me like, <laughs> if I live to retirement age, I might have civil rights. Like, oh, that's so reassuring. I'm so excited for yeah, you just have to wait to for there me. to be more of us. Yeah, it's just such a weird idea that like minorities will redeem the United States as if like the whole point is that like, there's a problem in US democracy since the very beginning. And I don't know, I mean, I, I really, yeah, I really appreciate that reaction. I mean, um, I'm, I'm down in Atlanta right now. And Atlanta has a very late pride. It was last weekend. And, you know, just sort of milling about in the city. And, and it was, you know, heard chatter about how, um, yeah, both Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, the two Democratic senators from Georgia, marched in the pride parade. And apparently, that's the first time a sitting senator from Georgia has marched in the pride parade, which was like, you know, again, one of those moments where I was like, that's cool. Like, these guys <laughs> seem interesting or whatever. But it's like, here are all these, you know, queer people. And you know, it's Atlanta. So it's like a huge you know, representation of the black queer and trans community in particular. And it's like, well, but who knows what that means for yeah. for Warnock's reelection campaign, none of this is guaranteed. And, you know, the right to vote is very deeply restricted in Georgia. And, they're, you know, it's just like, I don't know, not so clear to me. Um, it's not a like, oh, these gays, they just want to go to the party and they don't want to get out and vote. It's actually just like really complicated and not clear that everyone who's at pride, not everyone at the parade is going to be voting the same way. And that's like, yeah. like you said, kind of not new. <laughs> that's right. been a problem since like gay people started organizing or LGBTQ people started organizing as a voting block in the seventies. So, you know, we'll keep an eye on it though. sounds like we have time. Yeah. Siri set my clock to remind me 2040. <laughs> Are you safe? Yeah. I also just want to, like shout out gerrymandering in the electoral college for reasons why shifts in voting population. And like, for all we know, blue states could become red because like white people change their minds. I don't know. Um, The Midwest is calling. Yeah, totally. And we'll just say gerrymander, straightest word I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) Or Or a possible drag name. Okay, our first topic this month, we've been waiting to talk about for, I don't know, four weeks, whenever we decided we were going to talk about it. I've been so excited. It's the movie Bros. It's a romantic comedy starring and co-written by Billy Eichner, who the press materials are calling the first openly gay man to co-write and star in his own major studio film. I know we always have a nice little laugh at these like extremely qualified um, firsts, (laughs) but you know, good for Billy Eichner. So co-write, I just want to focus on that word for a second, that he co-wrote this movie because uh, just a disclaimer, Bros was directed and other co-written by a straight man, Nicholas Stoller, who's known for his bro comedies. So, you know, not a totally safe space here, um, but still a milestone. So to help us unpack this artwork that holds space for so much discourse about the life of the urban gay man, we are joined by an actual urban (laughs) gay man and soon to be acclaimed author, our very own Brian Louder. Brian, welcome to Outward. Oh my gosh, it's so wonderful to be on this side of the uh, interview, the virtual interview table. (laughs) It's good to be back. Um, It's so great to have you back. We've missed you. So listeners, if you haven't seen Bros and you want to and you don't want any spoilers, here's your chance to skip ahead to our next segment and come back to this one later. So, you know, this is your last chance and have fun out there. 
All right, you still here? <laughs> okay. Just to recap the plot before we dissect it, Bros follows the podcast host and semi-famous gay about town Bobby, played by Billy Eichner. He is on the board of an LGBTQ history museum that's set to open soon. He meets up for hookups with people he meets on the apps. Uh, but he generally doesn't go on dates or want a relationship because he thinks a lot of gay men are just dumb hunks of meat. Until he encounters a very hot <laughs> hunk of meat, Aaron, played by Luke McFarlane, who you might remember from the Christmas movie that we analyzed last year, Jingle. What was it? Single All the Way? Which Jingle all the gay. called Jingle All the Gay. That's what you it called it, yeah. Jingle All the Gay, yeah. But whatever. Anyway, I was like, where is this guy from? Yeah. It's from Jingle All the Gay. And many so, other Hallmark uh, romantic movies, by the mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, he's like a, he's yeah. a stalwart. Okay, good mm-hmm. for him. Yeah. He played straight in some mm-hmm. of them? Yeah, I believe so. Oh, yeah. good for him. Okay. Allegedly. So this guy, Aaron, he's, he's fun to talk to, even though he's like a big uh, lunk of meat. I can't think of another way to describe a muscular gay man. I don't know. Um, He also doesn't really date people and, in fact, doesn't even like to have one-on-one sex because it's too intimate. So the film is about what happens when a nerdy, skinny podcast guy dates a beefy gay bro. Uh, It's about this interesting moment of time we're in of persecution and also progress where cis gay life is still marginal in some ways but also uh, as one character says so passe and it's also about the depiction of lgbtq history in this museum that they're developing let's listen to a clip from a conference session where the board is discussing exactly what they should put in that museum We cannot afford to push our opening again. People will think we're in trouble. Maybe this whole place could fall apart. We need new ideas for what goes in the final wing, and we need them now. Cherry, go. You know the blue whale hanging in the Museum of Natural History? Yes. What about that, but instead of the blue whale, it's a lesbian? Oh, no. Yeah, Uh -uh. okay. Well, yeah, we can't do that. What if the final exhibit was a recreation of a queer wedding? I like that. That I don't have. Tomorrow, that is so sweet. I love that. And people can come and register for wedding gifts here. You're going to write that. Oh, my God. No! That is old-fashioned, heteronormative nonsense. We need to get people to rethink history through a queer prism, not comfort them with another... Gay wedding, all right? It's a museum. It's not Shit's Creek. Oh, I like but Shit's I, oh, Creek. I love Shit's Creek. That show has oh, layers. Right. Everyone loves Shit's Creek. Great, okay. Brian, since you're our guest here and sort of like the demographic analog to this movie, um, I'm going to give you the first stab at this film. What did you think? And did it live up for you to Billy Eichner's like incessant hype about this movie. Oh my God, what a what a question. So, well, I'll, I'll start by saying two things. I have not been a fan of Eichner's comedy going back a long way. Um, so I think that's mm. worth like putting on the table first. Um, but when this movie started being advertised back in like 2015, it feels like, but actually I think in May, the first trailer <laughs> came out. I, I think we passed it around actually among ourselves uh, because it yes. seemed sort of exciting. It, it seemed like it was going to be mm. about how, you know, gay love is very different from straight love and we don't want to assimilate. And that was that was very much like the tone of the trailer. So I was excited about this, actually, despite not loving how uh, screamy Eichner can be in his comedy. This movie seemed promising, at the very least. Going into it, I found it to be a really strange thing. It is it is very funny in parts, I thought. Um, I think it's, like, largely well-written. I think it's, it's like, well-constructed. 
and enjoyable for the most part, but it has all of these other weird preoccupations that I don't think we all expected, um, especially mm. the the actual, you know, he, all, all the marketing has been calling it historic, as you mentioned, and we can talk about whether that's true or not, but the movie itself is obsessed with queer history um, in a way that I yeah. did not mm-hmm. expect, that I found very surprising, and it has a lot of these kind of almost um, internecine debates like sort of loaded into it about the way we think about our history and our ancestors and, and what would our ancestors have wanted is it a rom-com? <laughs> I think it's kind of the question that that I started with. Brian, you wrote a really great piece for Slate called Billy Eichner's Curious Claims About Bros that was basically saying, should queer people want to be admitted into the canon of rom-coms mm-hmm. or do the conventions, are the conventions of rom-coms too stifling for like a truly queer and historically queer storyline? Can you explain sort of your argument there and what you think. Is it exciting to have a queer rom-com and do queer storylines fit naturally and historically into that frame? So my experience of watching this movie over the course of its two hours was that it felt sort of overstuffed and strangely kind of claustrophobic and like it needed mm. more editing. And I thought about yeah, that. There were so many things There's that so they raised much in, it in it that then we just move on. Yeah, so mm. many jokes, so so many little sort of gay life vignettes, things like that. Many of which are funny, as I say, but there's a lot of it. And afterward, I was thinking about why did I feel this way? Why did it feel so crowded to me? And I and I realized that what I think happened is they took this form, this the romantic comedy, and it is a very traditional romantic comedy. We should say the beats of the movie are like the most standard beats that you can think of, right? You've got the the sort of meet cute, the the two difficult people struggling to like understand each other, finally getting a little bit serious, getting a little bit vulnerable, and then some sort of. I guess third act problem happens to make them question that. And then in the end they get back together, right? Like the standard, Mm -hmm. the standard beats. So you've got that really strong structure in place. And and I think a very straight structure because the concerns of each of those beats are, I think arguably sort of traditionally straight concerns. And you're, you're you're talking about ultimately like a marriage plot, right? They don't get married at the end, Mm -hmm. but that, that is kind of what we're leading to. And the movie and Eichner and the co-writers and whatnot are at pains, I think, to gay that up as much as possible and sort of almost Mm. like distract (laughs) from the straightness (laughs) of the structure. And you end up with with a lot of tension. I don't know if if y'all felt that way about it, but it was it was sort of this very for all of its wanting to be like a, a lovely romantic comedy with perhaps a little bit of more like acerbic wit going on. It it has it's very tense and strange. I, I don't know if that mm. resonates. Yeah, no. I mean, I think tense describes a lot of a lot of stuff these days. That you know, a lot of projects that obviously had you know a particular uphill battle to getting produced or to getting adequate resources, and are sort of have to struggle in the really bizarre way where sort of fed representation by, you know, the corporate model or the studio system or the streaming, you know, conglomerates as if it's virtuous to consume media and as if there's something political about that. And it's like, you could certainly satirize that, but I think it's actually very hard. Right. And I think like, you know, in my mind, like this film isn't really 
exceptional. Like I feel like there's a lot of stuff I watch where it just I just feel stressed the whole time because <laughs> yeah, you know it's almost a sense of like artificial um, pressure. Like why are the stakes set so high? Because yeah. like it's a movie, you know, like it's not actually gonna like do. It doesn't have to do anything. I almost think that's like on layered on top of the sort of problem of trying to do a gay rom-com where it's like, well, yeah, like gay people or queer people have like long loved and obsessively consumed rom-coms, but that's like precisely because that's in our reading of it. It's how you receive Mm. it as an audience member and like how you modify it for your own pleasure in watching it. And so it's like, well, the whole point for me is like, I wouldn't actually want to be in mystic pizza i just want to watch mystic <laughs> pizza and think about you know what i mean like yeah, it's like yeah. right it's like i don't actually want to make a movie where i'm playing julia roberts because that's like actually would spoil the pleasure and so it puts you in a really difficult position to then pull that off and then you know but it's like you know i just like thinking about the, the cast is really impressive right yeah, i mean it's like yeah. we've got you know monica raymond guillermo diaz bowen yang t.s madison guy brown i'm like these are all people who mm-hmm. are you know who who haven't been given nearly as much as they deserve in the industry um and you know or in some cases until recently and it's like it's a pleasure to see them all in an ensemble cast you know or but like but 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 because of i think this larger architecture it's like when when any of them sort of have a moment right like it's it's solid like really good really funny Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. But the movie as a whole, I think, just reflects this kind of larger media environment that's, like, not giving people what they actually need to, like, do their craft. And, like, that sucks. But, like, I don't know. I just, I've been feeling really weird about um, how stuck we all are in these kinds of cycles of, like, should we watch this? Do we have to watch this? Does it matter? What? Like, I'm like, for Is it a political for act like, for what? us? Yeah. 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 Like, clearly not. Um, but, like, who, who, who? you know, I want people to get paychecks. I want people mm-hmm. to have jobs. So like, that, is it even about that? You know, I just like, feel like, I feel like in some ways I'm like, I feel like we've all lost the plot. Um, and like, mm. that's not really on Billy Eichner to fix. Right. I mean, I don't know how I would have tried to pull this off. Um, yeah. because I'm just like, I don't get it. You know, some things like <laughs> in a post they slash them world where it's like, don't know, don't just make any gay movie you want. It might be really bad. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like bros, like the simplest thing to say about it is that it's a cautionary tale about Mm. hyping these sort of milestones of representation because Mm. there's so much pressure on it when we're like, wow, it's the first openly gay man to co-write and star in his own major studio film. And and I think also, and like wide theatrical release was appended to that too. It's like even longer. Yeah, with a wide theatrical release. Yeah, it's even longer, yeah. And Billy Eichner has tweeted like, wow, it sucks that bros didn't have a huge blockbuster opening weekend because like all these straight people are too homophobic to go see it. That was, I'm paraphrasing, but that was like the gist of his tweet. Yeah, yeah, it was. And I'm like, actually, maybe a lot of gay people also didn't see it. Um, I feel Mm -hmm. like they were emphasizing the the milestone of it rather than the fact that it's a funny movie. And like you know, really does capture some specificities of urban gay male life that aren't in major studio releases. And it's nice to see a big budget movie. And it it does pose interesting questions about queer history, which again, Mm. I I didn't fully expect. And there are all these, like you said, Jules, like great Mm -hmm. minor characters played by incredible comedians and actors. And I fully enjoyed it, even though 
you know, the other thing is like a lot of times when a gay movie gets promoted or a TV show or whatever, it's like the LGBTQ community is represented by this film, <laughs> which is not true. No. It's like this right. very sort of narrow cultural niche that's represented. I didn't expect mm. to be represented by it. I certainly didn't feel represented. Like I'm right. pretty sure the word <laughs> lesbian was used as a punchline, which is like one of Billy Eichner's things. Like, And my theater, the theater that I was in was mm. almost all gay men, like half of whom knew each other. I think they did like a mass <laughs> ticket buy or something who, you know, laughed at like literally just the mention of the word lesbian. And I'm like, okay, like this movie isn't about me, but I still really enjoyed it. And to your point, Brian, about the structure of a rom-com, I feel mm. like the the fact that Bros and Fire Island both came out in the same year and in such close proximity to one another sort of uh, negatively affected both of them because I'm like c- comparing yeah. the two and they're two very different films, even though they're both about mainly cis gay men and so they hit a lot of the same cis gay men like cultural notes where it's like the apps and the clubs and the group Mm -hmm. sex and then like some discourse about like pressures to be sort of like muscle bound and mask and like what happens when you're not that the way they fit those stories into the rom-com frame were so similar where it's like oh but we're not monogamous and like oh at the end we don't get married we just like agree to date each other for a little bit and like I can already see how the rom-com form is limiting to queer storylines because they both did it in kind of the same way. Yeah, you know, they they tried to trouble, like you just said, not getting married, but they're like, let's date for three months, even though they've already said I love you, which is kind of an intense thing to say before you start dating. But also it ends with a discussion of having kids. Which, yeah. uh, which is sort of the last note, which I just thought was so so undermining to any any of Eichner's or uh, you know the marketing's claims that this was going to be about how different we are. We we end up in this really really conventional place. And to me, that's even more intense than like getting married. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like oh. All of a sudden, this guy who thinks it's too intense to have sex with only one right. person at a time is like, but I've always <laughs> right. wanted children. Hello? Yeah, no, and and I really do think that it's it was it is the genre that is like forcing that, and and maybe Eichner mm. he's he's spoken and pressed for the movie about like growing up on on the traditional rom coms and just really thinking that that was kind of the height of like Hollywood uh, creativity in certain ways I think, um, and so he's devoted to that, and so it makes sense that it would show up you know so so strongly, but. I think it really does limit what you can say and and what kinds of queer stories, you know, as someone in in a in a poly relationship uh, in a in a thruple, like the movie side eyes that the whole way through. When you yeah. could, and I'm not like offended, but it was like you could have imagined what what if there was a, a rom com about a thruple? That would actually be different and interesting. And there, yeah. in fact, if you go back in the history of cinema, there for some but you know anything that felt like it could really push the boundaries was sort of kept in the realm of of humor and we were left in this very traditional place i think that is representative of many gays Mm. i just i think that it's like the the hyping of it that it's gonna that it's gonna really show how different our relationships are like there was no way it could live up to that Mm -hmm. exactly and i i hear people who are like yeah you know why was this movie released in October, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's, like, not going to do well against um, horror films. Also, just, like, what good rom-coms have there been at any time recently? Like, the genre Mm. is... I'm not sure the genre makes sense anymore. And, like, Mm -hmm. 
And it seems really hard to pull that off because you go back and watch those rom-coms and part of what's so uncomfortable about them in particular is not just their conventionality, but actually they're just straight up creepiness. Like some of our cultural norms around heterosexuality have ostensibly shifted in terms of what is understood to be coercive and what is under, you know, what consent and what like it means for a man to, to badger a woman and chase her and show up at her workplace or whatever, Mm -hmm. or like basically like manipulate her. So it's like one, how like, is this genre even like workable anymore? But two, I think there's this question about humor that I've just never quite been able to put my finger on and it's hardly exclusive to this film but I was really interested in this it's like so like I think we can all safely say like like camp is very hard these days irony is not easy to pull off humor generally speaking is not like that and that's a huge shift for gay people because it's like oh my god you know a lot of how we've related (laughs) to mainstream culture historically has been through camp um, and irony and, and I think a lot, you know, one place that we are culturally, you know, in general is like we're in a pretty snarky, cynical, mm. kind of bitchy place. And it's like, there's so much about, like, I like snark and I'm a really judgmental person, um, you know, <laughs> when I'm not being recorded. Um, but like, but, but there's something about that, right? Where it's like a lot of the humor for me feels like missed opportunity where I'm like, why is this being played for snark? Because like one, it's true. There are a lot of weirdo people that are like this or that, or like, it's true. There are people who like act this way. It's true. Being gay is very different than it was 20 years ago. Mm. Like, I don't know because snark to me is about dismissing something out of hand. Right. So it's like by making fun of this, I'm pushing it off. Like we're done with it. Do you have an example? Like, can you remember an example from the film that did that? I think all of the, the sort of satire of, of homonormativity, right? Like Mm. the, like, you know, when like Guillermo Diaz's character like does the bottom dance and with the kids right. or something, you know, like all of these moments and Billy Eckner's like, it was, you know, gay sex was better when straight people were afraid of it. Like those moments are real. Like something has changed. Gay people have been domesticated. But then even on the flip side, the snark about the apps or the snark about thruples or, or gay culture, I'm like, okay, but like snark means you're actually not digging in. You're not even telling me why this is funny. You're not even telling me mm. why I should care. You're telling me that it's it's sort of blasé or embarrassing that some people are this way. And I'm like, but that actually discounts everything that's changed since the nineties when you couldn't make a gay rom-com. So part of it to me is like, when I'm trying to measure what it means to, for this film to exist today, I'm like, why are we, I don't know. There's just something about the humor that feels like it Mm. makes it harder to go there. And that's not, I don't think that's, again, do not think that's invented by bros, but I think it's a big problem I see in general where I'm like, I honestly can't remember the last time I saw a conventional comedy that I thought was funny. Mm. Um, Like weird comedies are (laughs) having a renaissance. And like, you know, I think there are a lot of queer and trans creators and people of color who are doing that work. So that, so it's, it's not that it can't be done, but I just, I I think Billy Eichner is a great vehicle to think about that. Obviously snark and part of like the work that he's done since Billy on the street has been about inventing some of this comedy. So, so there's something there, obviously he has a really important talent to bring, but, but I just, I just, this happens to me a lot lately where I'm like, okay, like I get the reference, but the citation doesn't really feel funny. It feels mean, mean in an uncurious way. I don't know. Does that, does that make sense to you both? Yeah. And I think now I'm thinking back at like some of the things that got the most laughs in the theater I was in. And I think part of it was like just an excitement that someone made a joke about 
something that feels unique yes. to queer people. And right. so it's like, oh, you you named it or like you recognized it. It's on the screen. Right. And like whether the joke was funny or not almost didn't matter because people were just so excited. Yeah. So maybe that is like a point in Billy mm. Eichner's camp where like, yeah, this did feel like a big deal for a lot of people. And even for me, like it was exciting to be in a theater and to see like even just a little bit more exploration into mm. gay culture than you'd see yeah. in a film where like a gay was a minor character or something like that. Where, But th- I feel like it touched on so many things that I wanted more exploration of. Like the fact that Bobby walks in on Aaron shooting himself up with tea. Yeah. And it's right. like, oh, the what? whole like steroid thing, we don't yeah. explore what that means for gay men. It's right. just like... Oh, do you want to do it or not? It like doesn't really matter. And to Jules's point, they 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 cast it off again with snark because it, uh, Billy yeah. then tries to take the testosterone, and there's this extended kind of physical gag sequence almost where he's like, yeah. you know, getting. It's not. I don't know if you call it. You wouldn't call it roid rage, but some kind of like. In, uh, <laughs> right. I think in, you would call it. Roid yeah. Rage. I mean, it's not. It wasn't steroids, but it was. Uh, yeah. Anyway, he he gets kind of like overstimulated and is screaming and knocking things down, and and so and we we dismiss that. That whole issue with that yeah. joke rather than talk about like you know beyond beyond Aaron saying well you really like my my muscles don't you so like don't like look askance at me doing this because this is how they exist um yeah. but it, but yeah it doesn't dig any further into it than that you're right but it did make me be like wow are a lot of the like gay men with amazing bodies or like super muscly bodies are they all on tea? Uh, I think I think it's pretty common. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I learned something. I just want to talk about sort of a realization I had about rom coms while watching this movie mm. and and watching Fire Island. So looking at two films that tried to bring non monogamy into a rom com. Yeah, it made me realize that so much of the narrative tension in a classic rom-com is based on conventions of monogamy. So like Mm. jealousy, cheating, Mm. one person's desperate to get married and the other one's afraid of it. Obviously these things can also happen in non-monogamous relationships, but not in the same way. And I was trying to imagine like, tedious and complicated way you might explain <laughs> if like a, if there was cheating in a non-monogamous relationship like well this person crossed a boundary and like even non-monogamous relationships have boundaries but it just right. feels I'm like I can't imagine that being the center of a rom-com right. in the same way they are in like these monogamous ones and so I was it like deflates some of the tension and I feel like rom-coms really thrive on simplicity and a shared set of norms about Mm. what people want and expect out of a relationship and what's out of bounds. And if we're trying to make a rom-com in a culture in which there's a different set of of shared norms that isn't like uh, straight people's norms, it's it's very hard to build up that same kind of investment. And I think you even see it in bros where they're like, they make a big deal about non-monogamy but then it's like oh well actually i don't want i want to be monogamous but then i actually don't know how they end like what the final word it's, on that was i'm like yeah. why did you sort of feel the need to walk that back it was it because you couldn't think of a way for him for bobby to get mad yeah. at aaron without like seeing him kiss someone else i don't know that is the sort of third act like conflict of uh, you know the rom-com conflict in this movie is that Aaron asks to explore non-monogamy. They, I think they've been dating actually for like about a year at this point or something like that. Um, and he's like, hey, ma- you know, maybe I would like to sleep with this person. I, the only way 
that it it makes any sense at all is that as a narrative choice is that the person happens to be his like high school crush, which I do think yeah. most people would find a a bit unnerving, if not threatening, if not like out yeah. of bounds. Like that that worked. But if it hadn't been, if it had just been like another guy, there would have been no tension. <laughs> like not in not in right. New York gay life. Like it's just it's just not yeah. the case. Like no one would, would really look askance at that. And the, I I wonder <laughs> in the writing process if there was some moment where they were like, huh, we have to make this this other person be somehow toxic because like just the idea of sleeping with someone else is not gonna do it like it's not enough uh in the culture that you're talking the subculture that you're talking about and yeah it's it is it is brought up and then it's quickly dismissed you know i was for a moment i was sort of excited i was like well this this will be a new thing to explore in the genre if we really dig into what what non-monogamy looks like um for a for a couple but no it's 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 like swept away as quickly as it could be and there you know you end up just with the two of them together again and i think i think the understanding is that uh, Bobby is not into open relationships. That was that was what I took away at the end. Yeah. Before we go, I want to bring up one of the side plots of this story, which is the development of this queer history museum. And they're wondering, you know, the, the museum board is kind of debating whether it's appropriate to claim Abraham Lincoln as gay. There's also, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt, who <laughs> I think shows up in like the Hall of Bisexuals or something. One of Slate's straight writers, who I think listens to this podcast, hi, Heather, apparently didn't know that Eleanor Roosevelt was widely considered mm. queer yeah. and like, you know, had all of the steamy letters to prove it. And she, you know, did a Q&A for Slate about it. But I was like, huh, maybe straight people will learn something about this. What do you guys think of the depiction of those sorts of debates about claiming our, you know, ancestors as queer. Yeah, I just, I think for me, it is the central problem Mm -hmm. that the film is trying to wrestle with, right? Which is like, wait, what? (laughs) I'm like, these stakes are so weird, right? It's like, whether or not Abraham Lincoln was gay seems like a question for straight people, honestly, to me. (laughs) I'm like, it's not interesting. This idea that LGBTQ history, right? It's like, well, hold on, what are you even talking about? Because it's Mm -hmm. not a uniform thing. If you want to talk about how all these people who have been considered straight and had tons of power historically were also having gay sex, then like, cool. But like, I'm not really sure that that's important um other than just like reaffirming the ruling class um and trying to like dress up their image and so i'm you know it's like the idea of a of a separate lgbtq history museum is not obvious to me i mean there are some Mm. so i also don't know why the film is imagining this first thing happening is sort of bizarre but i'm just like that's not you know like i don't care about abraham lincoln eleanor roosevelt um and the idea of like again it's like this you know it's an old joke in academia right but there's like a you know book that came out in 1990 that was like you know what does it even mean to do queer readings of the canon you want me to go find a gay shakespeare and a gay plato like what are you talking about <laughs> literally western culture is all by white gay men or white men who have sex with other white men again it's like this weird idea of like 
well, are we going to be in a rom-com? And it's like, yeah, are we going to become straight? Are gay people going to be part of Mm -hmm. the upper crust of America? Well, they already were. And look how fucked we are politically. So I don't know. It just, that landed really weird for me in 2022. Again, not their fault. I'm sure they've been working on this film for a long time. But I was just like, yeah, I don't think like, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to weep to go to the Eleanor Roosevelt exhibit and realize that she needs to stop trying to ruin gay and trans people's lives. I just, and I don't think gay people are uplifted by this story i think it's actually kind of a weird mystery i don't know it just but whatever i'm a sensitive historian so (laughs) we'll take your opinion on that and yeah i think it's like at the bottom line it's about the difference between like queerness as sex act or queerness as like a socio-political identity which has only existed like pretty recently and queerness as like love story right i mean that's that's yeah. clearly mm-hmm. what what eichner thinks like that i mean in, in, in statements yeah. he made and sort of i think in just the creation of this movie you get a sense that like love is what defines us for him and, and when so we're looking yeah. back at history we're looking for love that was erased or hidden or whatever which you can do but it's it's such a limited way i think to 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 approach that history. There's so many other ways that people could be relating to each other. And, and, and certainly uh, I don't think that the tropes of the rom-com can extend uh, too far back at all. So for, for all kinds of reasons, it does leave you in an odd place uh, if you're, if you really care about queer history, but if you are only looking for a romantic finale under fireworks, then I don't think you're going to find that many, but maybe we shouldn't want to. Wow, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you, Brian, for coming back to share it with us. Oh, it was my pleasure. I miss you guys. LGBT History Month might not always get as much attention as its chic older sister, Pride Month, but take it from this nerd, history is extremely unabashedly cool. I don't think anyone will be surprised to hear me say that. But part of what makes LGBT history so fascinating actually isn't just that the people, the stories, and the artifacts we encounter can be kind of head-spinning, challenging what we think we know about ourselves, and also where our communities come from. It's actually also that the research, the classification, and the storytelling process is just never obvious, but like in the most delightful, creative way. So does LGBT history need its own institutions, its own finding aids and standalone glory? Or are the oldest, most traditional institutions also queer history hotbeds that just haven't been given their due? And how do we make sense of both of those possibilities? To help us answer some of these questions and to share some very amazing recommendations, we are joined by Meg Metcalf, a librarian, community historian, and LGBTQ studies collection specialist at the Library of Congress. Meg, welcome to Outward. We are so excited to talk with you and thank you for bringing our queer LOC Library of Congress vibes to the show this month. Thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here to celebrate LGBTQ History Month with y'all. <laughs> yes, couldn't couldn't have a better um, reason to get together. And, you know, I think like probably I've said this before, but like the work that I do in my day job as a historian would be frankly impossible without the expertise and wisdom of people like you. And so I was wondering, would you would you maybe start by telling us a little bit about like how did you get into this area of work? Um, you know what pulled you in, in particular to LGBT history questions, and 
What kind of work do you get up to at the Library of Congress now? Absolutely. Um, I think it's really important to talk a little bit about my background in women's and gender studies. It's very much a research-focused, interdisciplinary kind of program, and that's where I first discovered periodicals like The Ladder from the Daughters of Belitis and the Mattachine Review, and um, having those moments where I asked myself, you know, why have I never heard of this before? You know, as a as a lesbian historian, how have I never heard of these groups? Um, and that's because this history is found in places, you know, other than textbooks, other than in those traditional sources we've come to value. Um, so I kind of became a little bit obsessed with tracking down these hidden histories and um, finding the most creative formats that I could, especially um, periodicals and newspapers. Mm. Um, so I got my degrees in women's and gender studies and library science and ended up here at the library where I found an enormous print collection. We are actually the world's largest library and we are a working public library open to everyone. And it was actually in the stacks that I found a lot of resources that I had never heard of before. And so the love affair sort of started there and hasn't ended and uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As all good affairs are, they yes. just go on and on and reinvent themselves. Right? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I love that image of just like being in the stacks. I mean, I'm totally a librarian aficionado. So like, you know, my, <laughs> my biases are just going to be raging through this whole segment. <laughs> but like, there is that kind of feeling, right? Of like, if you're in a library and a library is a space that you sort of like know how to navigate already, um, kind of having these moments of like, oh, hold on, what are you doing here? Who are you? Oh, wow. Right. And like, I guess, you know, th- that leads me to a, a version of something that's a little more elegant, aka a question. <laughs> um, but like, you know, wh- what does it sort of mean to you to think about the Library of Congress, right? Like you said, world's largest library, an institution mm-hmm. that opened like, you know, at the very beginning of the 19th century. What does it mean to you to think about yeah, a place like the Library of Congress as a repository of queer history. Like, how do you sort of wrap your head around that? Or how would you describe that um, for us? It's kind of incredible because I quickly learned, I'm a reference librarian, um, and I quickly learned that people come to the Library of Congress to see themselves in history, whether that's Mm. American history or any other type of history, because we collect globally. We collect in over 460 languages. And so for me, it was getting to experience that joy with people, realizing that, yes, this library has something for you, and queer history is part of history, and how do you go about finding those resources um, and elevating them? And so we've done a lot of work in terms of updating collections policy statements and doing outreach through blogs and events. And so it's really basically digging it out and trying to create resources so that other people can find these things. So my day-to-day looks different every day, but it's definitely never boring. (laughs) Do you know how long the Library of Congress has had specific deliberate collections and resources for LGBT history? So the collections policy statements uh, began with me and the Carla Hayden administration. However, we have had LGBTQ materials forever. In fact, some of the earliest materials we have are probably um, in the Thomas Jefferson papers, which you would not expect. He was not an ally necessarily. Um, <laughs> so I'll let you look up Can't his feelings on that. By that. <laughs> He's an ally to so many other communities. <laughs> 
But what he was was, you know, he had court records and legal records from colonial North America. So we have, you know, the legal proceedings of Thomasine Hall, who was an intersex uh, indentured servant in mm. colonial America. Um, and they did not know what to do with Thomasine Hall. It was, okay, dress as a man. Okay, dress as a woman. Okay, dress as both. And I think it really goes to show just the just the depth and breadth of the collection really um, does a great job of showing how gender and sexuality has changed so much over time, um, even here in a young country, you know, like America. This turn to deliberate curation and programming and kind of taking the time to frame things out, which is really seems very continuous with the mission of the Library of Congress, which is that it's supposed to be sort of like the ultimate public library, right? Like, you know, that, that everyone you know, who walks through those doors or maybe now goes online as well, might be able to connect themselves to the collections. Um, In some ways, like we are our own finding aids. And so even if an LGBTQ rubric for that is relatively recent, you know, one, it seems very much in keeping with the purpose of the institution. But it's so interesting to then realize that like, yeah, because the whole collection this whole time has been waiting in complicated ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jefferson is such a great example of that, right? I'm really sort of interested in that kind of connection because I think sometimes, you know, libraries and archives and museums can be intimidating to to people, um, not just because they're vast and involve very elaborate filing systems and, you know, used to have those gorgeous card catalogs, but like, it's a lot to navigate, right? And one question... I'm just sort of interested in, in general, is like, you know, if, if people are sitting here reflecting during this month, they're just kind of curious about like how they fit into bigger historical narratives or like, what's my local queer history? What's your advice on kind of how to get started if that involves something like trying to do research yourself? Because, you know, like we live in this era and I think we've been lucky on this show to have a lot of authors on recently who have, you know, done that kind of painstaking research and written whole books and it's wonderful. But I always encourage people like, go out and do it yourself. Um, And one reason is that like, there's so much research to be done. There's so much to explore. Those of us who do it for a living will never even scratch the surface. But I just think, you know, it can feel like that's so cool. But if everything is out there, what do I do? How do I start? (laughs) Uh, What's what's your sort of practical advice for people who might be interested, but, um, you know, haven't used the or don't remember using the Library of Congress anytime recently? Yes, libraries are very intimidating, especially the world's largest. Um, (laughs) And that's something we've had to work a lot to combat. My first piece of advice would be, I'm so sorry, but nothing is ever going to be totally online. Um, And if you really want to do research, you're going to have to use physical materials. I'm so sorry. Um, But a lot of this material does not exist anywhere besides this one copy or this microfilm Mm. surrogate of this item. Although that sounds very scary, there are people who are trained to help you and just so excited to help you, like me. So for the Library of Congress, for example, um, we have librarians, historians, curators in every single reading room um, who can help you navigate these collections uh, because it would be impossible to navigate on your own. And even as a librarian myself, I rely so much on my colleagues because we not only are researchers in our own right, but we help researchers every single day. And so we've gotten to look at these collections over years and for some of my colleagues, decades. So nobody knows the collections better than the librarians and archivists who work with them. So most libraries 
luckily also have librarians and archivists who can help you navigate these collections. Um, and most of us have a virtual service of some kind that you can take advantage of that is totally free. So for example, here at the library, anyone can get a hold of me by writing to ask.loc.gov. And that's our free Ask a Librarian service. And I am thrilled when I get LGBTQ history questions. And I definitely go totally <laughs> overboard with my responses sometimes because when I first got got here, the visibility wasn't exactly there. And so I didn't get a lot of those questions. Mm. And over the years, I've seen there there's become more and more visibility and awareness. And I think a lot of that had to do with Stonewall 50 kind of mm. creating more awareness as well, but also just all the outreach we've been doing in these last few years. So I would say talk to the librarians um, and be prepared to look at physical materials because that is where most history lives for, you know, marginalized and oppressed peoples. That said, I do want to mention that y'all have a ton of stuff online. Oh, I was yeah. just kind of poking <laughs> around um, some of your, you know, digital collections that you can access through the internet. And, you know, you mentioned some of these periodicals. I was reading one of the issues of Transvestia magazine, which was, I think, like from the mid 20th century. Mm-hmm. And... Publications like these that are published by and for LGBTQ people at a time when there wasn't the internet are just so fascinating to me because so many of them are full of like, not only like poems and letters to the editor that give like a a really, really diverse depiction of what people are thinking about and asking themselves at the time, but it, it also gives off this sense of a community talking to itself, which is so hard to find in history when you don't always have access to like letters or like internal notes from meetings or things like that. And it just rocketed me back to the moment that these people were writing in and sharing information with each other across states and across generations. Like, okay, write into this magazine if you've heard of any court cases about like, if like gender nonconforming people can dress as they please, like how is this playing out in your state? It just strikes me as so resourceful and useful for us like a generation or two later. Are there any specific items in the collection that have sort of struck you as that, as like a portal into the past in a particularly vivid way. So I came across something called Checklist 1960, and that was put out by Barbara Greer, who was writing under Jean Damon um, and worked with the Daughters of Belitis Publishing. Now, this was a self-published index that Mm -hmm. I have no idea how it made it to the Library of Congress. But there were resources on there that I had never heard of that would not have been collected at any other libraries at the time. Um, So it's I'm constantly finding things that because they came in through copyright and we just happened to keep it, um, no other library really has this random mimeographed first edition. And it's really a wayfinding resource. It's saying, look, this is where I can't imagine, you know, being a lesbian in like 1960 and finding that and, and seeing I'm not alone here because how else would you have known that? I get goosebumps when I think about it. It's probably one of the favorite, my favorite things that I've ever found here. We do have documentary footage from the first Gay Pride March, Christopher Street Liberation Day, and that is on our website on loc.gov. Search Gay and Proud, and that comes right up. And see if you can find Sylvia Rivera dancing in the streets. 
And similarly, I think for earlier history, my favorite thing of all time is historic newspapers, because that's something that you can find stories going all the way back to the 19th century and earlier, um, especially like historically black newspapers like the Afro-American and the Evening Star. You know, you can find evidence of drag balls in D.C. in like the 19th century that (laughs) the first known drag queen, William Dorsey Swan, like here's a whole article about how they got raided and how they resisted arrest and, you know, their beautiful evening gown that was absolutely torn to shreds. And it's these kinds of things that illustrate that LGBTQ history and activism and uprisings, they happened not just decades before Stonewall, but centuries. And so you kind of have to navigate between the different formats to get that sense of how vast our histories really are. Hmm. I mostly research the 20th century, but I've been dipping my toe into the 19th century. And even for me, I keep being like, oh, oh, wow. Like this, you know, there's a lot of things that like that whole scenario of putting on a drag ball and getting raided by the police. Like how interesting that that's going on (laughs) for over a century in a row. Right. And it's like there's something just a little startling about that from the perspective of the present looking back. Right. And I love that about about encountering primary documents, like coming into direct contact with the past, um, you know, it can sometimes just emotionally be even more enriching and a little more jostling than maybe reading, you know, someone's summary of their work or whatever. Um, and, And so I always think it's very exciting to and also for that reason to come into contact with the physical material. Um, Could you talk a little bit about maybe some of the challenges, like if we wanted to go into those historical newspapers, I know this is something I talk with my students about all the time, right? But here we are in 2022 and we have Twitter to scream at each other about (laughs) language all day long. So aren't we so lucky? But of course, you know, the the language and terminology that people used a long time ago is not just different. Um, like that, I think we all kind of take for granted, of course, right? But but like if, if someone was interested in learning more about, yeah, say, you know, um, the black community's balls in, you know, the late 19th century, like how would you, I mean, of course, some of, you, some of what the work that you've done is actually putting together guides and, and help and of course, always, always, yes, always ask a librarian for help first. But if someone is sitting down, right, um, with that, that historical newspapers collection is just sort of generally interested, like, how, how do you navigate that? Like, how do you figure out um, sort of what search terms to use? Or, you know, any any tips on sort of how to how to bridge that gap um, between ourselves and the past? You know, you need to use historical vernacular and think about how are people talking about this and at what time and why would they be talking about Mm it? Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of that has to do with when people are coming into interaction with law enforcement or the medical establishment or some sort of institution. So I keep a list of terms that I've found um, have worked for me. And it comes, you know, Mm -hmm. things like femme mimics or, you know, female husband um, and things like that. And these terms can generate a lot more results than, you know, if you search lesbian, you're not going to get much before 1960. Um, (laughs) It also helps if you have a general sense of the date that you're looking at. Um, You can just kind of go in and browse sort of by 
general dates. Um, but I think the most helpful thing is to figure out, you know, how were people talking about this during that time period and coming up with a list of, of how to do that. And definitely use the advanced search option on Chronicling America, which the address is chroniclingamerica.loc.gov. Chronicling America is a digitized collection of historic newspapers. It includes millions of pages um, from the 1800s all the way into the 20th century. And it is an absolute treasure for LGBTQIA history. Please go to advanced search and search as a phrase. That's my number one <laughs> recommendation for you. And I will say that we have a great team here that works on Chronicling America that goes in and can fix things when, you know, you're searching and things aren't coming up. So, um, for example, I was looking at the Zuni Two-Spirit Leader Weiwa, and I said, you know, I'm... I'm typing this way. It's spelled all these different ways. It's not coming up. Um, and before you know it, the next time I went to search, it came up. So <laughs> you can also write to the Ask Librarian if you're finding something and it didn't come up in a way that you expected. So it's kind of um, both researchers and our like metadata specialists are sort of like working together to create more visibility and more findability for these resources. Yeah. Who are some of the other... Um figures of history that you've encountered that have particularly <sighs> captured you? Well, I love the story of Frances Thompson, who was uh, born enslaved and was actually the first trans woman to ever testify before Congress. They testified about their assault during the Memphis riots. Mm -hmm. um, and you can find that not only in Chronicling America, but in congressional testimony where here's this black trans woman testifying as a woman in the congressional record under their chosen name. And it's um, moments like that, that you really have to pinch yourself. And I just want to shout it from the rooftops. You know, <laughs> I get so excited when I find these things. And of course, Princess Weiwa has been one of my favorites um, mm. because um, finding so many photographs in Chronicling America, which you might not expect to find these photographs <laughs> of early, you know, trans and gender nonconforming folks but newspapers is, are probably one of the earliest places to find that information, which I think is kind of amazing that we have. I actually have a zine that I made of compiled. I know the oh. listeners can't see, but these are images compiled just from Chronicling America. Wow. Um, That's so yeah. cool. I will always defend the, the nerdy business of doing historical <laughs> research and like, you know, nothing makes me more excited than dusty old papers um, and my, my trusty archival note spreadsheet. But, you know, it's, that's not the only way people could come about it. And I'm so glad you mentioned Weihua, who's someone that I teach about a lot. And, you know, for, for folks who you know, might be hearing this name for the first time. Weihua is, a, you know, someone who, you know, maybe would be identified as Two-Spirit today from um, the Zuni Nation, who in the, you know, second half of the 19th century, you know, played a, a fairly important cultural and political role in the Zuni Pueblo uh, in the Southwest, but, but has this amazing story that I think, again, really gets to the heart of what's interesting and almost like the riddle of something like LGBT History Month, because I'm forgetting the exact dates, but, you know, in, in the second half of the 19th century, you know, she basically goes to Washington, D.C., you know, under difficult circumstances, sort of invited by these elite white people and sort of social scientists and anthropologists who had been, you know, doing this kind of very disturbing form of, of anthropological kind of um, research in the Southwest sort of on this presumption that indigenous nations are 
are on their way out and are dying out. And so the role of, you know, of American collectors and scientists in museums is almost like to inventory a dying culture, just absolutely mm. absurd, um, since the United States is directly <laughs> bringing about the political oppression of many indigenous groups. But but so Huehua comes to DC on this sort of taking on that difficult role of like, I've been invited, but clearly, you know, takes it on as in like, well, I'm going to go visit this weird, the capital of this weird nation that keeps antagonizing my people, right? And sees it on on a different kind of maybe footing than than white observers. But, you know, it seems like the story goes, everyone's dazzled because no one realizes, you know, that she is two-spirit. No one realizes, you know, everyone just takes her to be a woman. They talk about her as a princess, but no one realizes that, you know, she's sort of, quote-unquote, in a Western in a Western framework, you know, kind of crossing a gendered boundary there. I don't know. There are so many weird stories, and I don't even know if any of them are true because, you know, people spin weird tales. But, like, there's this scene I'm always stuck on of, I think, I don't know if she had gone to the opera or something, but is like in the bathroom in the women's restroom and is watching a rich white American woman, like, I don't know, fiddle with her wig and powder her face. And, and she's like, oh, I see. Like white women are totally fake. They're just like a series <laughs> of um, ornaments that are pieced together. Oh, how interesting. That must be how gender works in this culture. It's just this amazing moment of like role reversal. But the idea, right, that we think of like, oh, DC and the halls of power. So, you know, always so exclusionary and there couldn't have ever been a two-spirit or indigenous presence there. There could never have been trans history going on at an opera hall in 19th century DC. But in fact, no, it's like she was there, but she was only seen through one disparaging light. And in fact, everything that she might've been up to or might've thought is really hard to reconstruct. Anyways, I mean, I don't want to start going on a long <laughs> soliloquy about one of my favorite historical figures, but, but you know, I'm so delighted that like you know you go to this archive and she was herself you know really invested in different um artistic traditions you know like uh and 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 produced art herself and so to think about like remixing that and making a zine right like kind of engaging with it on an aesthetic level too um because the historical record might not tell us things like what was she really thinking you know Mm -hmm. like how did she perceived being objectified and how did she deal with the racism and how did she deal with you know I, didn't she meet like the president's wife and like mm-hmm. you know anyways i've got to stop talking I'm oh she met the president away. she Secretary met the president. state right. i believe they gave her just incredible gifts and mm. everybody was just absolutely fawning so one of my absolute favorite stories definitely read those newspaper articles because they're adorable they're just i i can't <laughs> the way they describe the outfits and mm. just like the dazzle of Weiwa is is pretty special <laughs> and also problematic, but um, definitely something to read for sure. Yeah, the fact that we can find LGBTQ people in like every section of the library and at every point in history uh-huh. made me kind of think about, you know, what is the value of collecting these things and presenting them as, you know, this is LGBTQ history. And how do you decide what goes into that category? You know, these are kind of abstract questions. But when it comes to a library, they're also very tangible and important. How do you sort of grapple with the question of what what an LGBTQ collection should be and what should be in it and how you're supposed to label it all? I 
don't get to have control over labeling everything. Um, I mostly work with the general and international collections, but I will say when I wrote the collections policy statements, which um, anyone can read online, um, that process took a couple of years. And basically, um, it's a lot of stakeholders here talking about where are the holes in these collections and what do we need to be collecting? Mm. Because we do amass a lot of materials sort of automatically. You know, through copyright, we get mm. about ten to 15,000 items every day. So yes. we're getting the mainstream stuff, right? So it's important that we have these policy documents and subject experts here so that we can talk about what hasn't been collected, what are we missing. So we have definitely specific goals in terms of what we would like to collect more of. I think um, a lot of institutions have had a, a large focus on white, cis, gay, you know, affluent history. That's sort of the history that we've had access to for a really long time. And so now it's about, well, how do we collect histories that are more difficult to collect? And that involves, again, looking at different formats and the type of care that these different formats require, because it's definitely really tricky working backwards and saying like, for example, Jane Addams, like that collection is not, you know, labeled necessarily as a lesbian collection. Charlotte Cushman, Salito Solano, these collections are from people who were alive before those terms were used. So the ethics on that are very much evolving, and I expect that we will see more change on that in our lifetimes. But that's going to be uh, very slow to change, I think, because we are not the only people who are invested in the history of these individuals. And so it's it's definitely, it's tricky. I think, you know, these days people come in and these collections are labeled in such a way and it, it's like a no-brainer. But these collections are pretty new to mainstream libraries or or the fact, if not new, they're new at being advertised as such. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a slow process where we have to be very careful because you definitely don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> so how do you, so when you go about sort of um, proactively seeking to collect, uh, you know, certain materials from certain groups, how do you identify, like, do you have any experience with actually reaching out to, you know, the archivist at some other organization and saying, hey, we want this stuff in the Library of Congress? Well, so we can't really take materials from other libraries. <laughs> so it's usually, I wish, I wish the one archivist would just dump their whole collection right, right. here. That would be great. Uh, Kinsey, if you would like to send everything here, awesome. Um, but for me, I'm just a huge nerd. And so also, you know, my background in library science, I have like a million alerts set up. I have certain shops I'm always looking at, um, certain search terms that every day I'm going through and I'm looking for these materials because there, a lot of these materials, you know, less than a thousand were published, less than 200 were published. And I have had success in finding things um, that were limited edition. It just can often take several years. Um, and I think part of it also is the fact that we are much more, you know, celebratory now about our LGBTQ collections, people actually come to us. And that makes it a lot easier as well. <laughs> Do you have like a holy grail, like the thing that you oh. just would love to acquire? Yeah, put it out in the ether. We'll get it for oh my you. Gosh. Yeah, manifest That's a great it. question. <laughs> there are collections I'm jealous of at other libraries, mm. but I'm also always like wishing I had full runs of certain periodicals. Mm. Um, I would love to have more materials about like, from like Queer Nation and sort of like Lesbian Avengers and that sort of thing. I did just buy, I was so excited, I got uh, Volume 1, Issue 1 of The Furies, which was the DC oh, Lesbian wow. Collective. Yes. And I had been looking for that 
for years. Um, oh and God, I got it at a local so bookstore. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Incredible. You were just browsing yeah. or you knew that it was there? Actually, the store owners emailed me because oh, they said, I, I know that. you've been looking for this and we will <laughs> hold on to it. And thankfully they did. And so now we have that in the newspaper and current periodical reading room. See, clearly, I think listeners can tell librarians and archivists actually run the whole world. Um, so <laughs> we, we're, we're grateful for it. And the work that you're doing and a part of Meg is just really inspiring and very exciting. And I, I just want to I want to lay down that gauntlet to our listeners. Like, you know, I think we've heard a lot of really interesting names and lots of different collections. But I want to encourage everyone like just take a little time, go browse the website, think about what you might be interested in, and get involved because one way or another by doing research, by thinking of materials you might want to make sure are preserved for the future or just being a part of how we make use of these living collections, like the Library of Congress will be, will be setting the agenda for future queer history months, which I think is a pretty cool thing to do. But um, I mean, you know, I would keep you here all day going uh, item by item through the entire Library of Congress collection. And I'm being told that we don't um, have Dang. the episode length for that yet. So we'll, we'll, we'll get back to it. But, but Meg, truly, thank you so much for, for sharing your expertise with us and also for, for validating um, that I'm not the only person in the world that has this particular uh, enthusiastic relationship to old dusty materials. Oh, it's been so wonderful to be in conversation. I mean, there's only so many people you can nerd out about this stuff with. So uh, this has absolutely made my day. And to anyone listening, please come see me at the library. Anybody can come see me. You don't even have to be a citizen. Just bring a photo ID and let me show you the library. And, you know, if you can't come by in person, you know, write to me online. I would love to help you. Well, that's about it for this candy corn filled month. But before we go, we do have your monthly updates to the gay agenda. So Christina, what have you got for us? Well, as I was watching Bros, I was trying to think of why one of the minor characters looked so familiar. So in Mm. Bobby's friend group, there's a transmasculine couple. One person is played by a redhead, the wonderful Becca Blackwell, who I've seen in a bunch of things and who's great. And the other one, I knew I recognized him, but couldn't remember from where. Turns out it's D'Lo, who's an actor and comedian mm. who I'd actually heard a podcast about a few months ago. And, you know, after listening to that podcast, I, of course, looked him up to be like, well, what does this guy look like? And uh, he looks great. And that's besides <laughs> the point. I'm recommending this very sweet and funny podcast episode from NPR's Code Switch. The episode mm. is called Spilling the Tea. Uh, T as in testosterone. And the story is mostly narrated by Code Switch producer Kumari Devarajan, who was first introduced to D'Lo at one of his shows in LA in 2019. And the show really spoke to Kumari because, as she says, D'Lo is her demographic doppelganger because they're mm. both queer and gender nonconforming. They're both Sri Lankan, which there are fewer than 50,000 Sri Lankans in the U.S., so already kind of rare. And they're both Tamil, which is the ethnic minority in Sri Lanka. And they're both queer and gender nonconforming. So Kumari was basically like, what are the odds that, you know, I get to meet this person who shares so much of my culture and worldview? And so the episode sort of goes through, it's about Delo's show. Um, There are some clips from it, which are 
very thoughtful and also really funny. But it's also about the experience of Kamari watching this show, thinking like her life experience is so singular and shared by so few people. And then seeing that reflected back at her and being kind mm. of wowed by like the recognition she felt, the feelings, and also what it means to meet somebody who shares so many facets of your own identity and see that on a stage and also see people seeing that on stage. So it's a really lovely podcast. And again, it's really funny. It's NPR's Code Switch podcast, and the episode is called Spilling the Tea. Jules, what do you have for us? So I have a book recommendation. I mean, I'm so biased because this is one of my favorite people in the entire world. Um, But this is a book that's just come out called um, by Cecilia Gentili, who a lot of folks might know is kind of a legendary trans woman activist from the New York City era, hilarious comedian and cultural producer who's written a sort of reinvention of the of the memoir genre it's called faltas letters to everyone in my hometown who isn't my rapist so you know (laughs) definitely challenging (laughs) definitely challenging reading but you know might not be for everyone but it's it's absolutely i think maybe like one of the best books like ever 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 written so gentili you know for folks who don't know is originally from argentina um, and grew up, you know, there in the 1970s, um, you know, as a young queer and trans woman, eventually made it to the United States, um, trying to, you know, figure out how to survive, um, lived undocumented for a long time, kind of, you know, hustling and doing sex work and surviving the carceral system and the immigration system, um, after which she was able to win an asylum case and has just gone on to do really important um, work in New York at gay men's health crisis and, you know, a bunch of trans equity stuff. She's been on Pose. You've probably seen her around. She's just so funny. And she carries this kind of particular sense of, speaking of humor, this kind of humor that I associate with a lot of trans women and travestis from um, from Latin America or from the Southern Cone that just like have a way of talking about trauma and difficult or just horrifying experiences. Unlike, I mean, it's just unlike anything you've ever encountered before. So the whole book is sort of her writing a series of letters to people from this hometown where a bunch of horrific things happened to her. And I, there's just nothing like it. I, I don't know. I really, I really think it sounds heavy, but she has this levity and wit that is just so unique. And um, I, I really, I really encourage folks who who have that, you know, have the capacity to go there to just give this a read because I think I think you'll you'll sort of find as I have myself that it kind of just like you know when someone is just doing something so new and so kind of over your own head I'm like wow I I am not equipped to digest this and I'm really fascinated wow. by that it's just so I don't know and so I just and I think Cecilia is just like the greatest person ever um and so you know you won't be mad to to have her in your life <laughs> um and and it's a it's a great book out from a new small press run by um, two trans women. So highly encourage you to check out Faltas by Cecilia Gentili, which is available from Little Puss Press um, and wherever you get your books. What a wonderful recommendation, Jules. Higher praise has has never been given. One of the best books that's ever been written. Um, I know. I do not say that lightly. I can't wait to check this out. Yeah, I'm sure you don't. Thank you, listeners, for joining us this month. That's the end of our show. Please send us your feedback, as always, and topic ideas, things you want us to chit-chat about at outwardpodcast at slate.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter at Slate Outward. 
Our producer is June Thomas, the star of our wildest rom-com dreams. And if you like Outward, please subscribe to us in your podcast app, tell your friends and fam about it, and rate and review the show so other people can find it. We'll be back in your feeds November 16th, right before my birthday. Bye, Jules. It was so great to have this little tete-a-tete this month. Anytime. And I just want to say bye, bruh, to all the bros. (laughs) See ya, bruh. Uh, Stay gay out there. Stay gay.